G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Radio in Melbourne with financial support from the Community Radio Foundation. We come to you on the Community Radio Network through your local community radio station. Two features for you today. As the dust settles on the Banking Royal Commission and the Murdoch media wants us to believe that Morrison has a shot at the PM's job, since the real issue is refugees and boats, not banking, we thought the best thing to do is talk to the financial sector union, the FSU, about why the look into banks is unfinished business. We follow that up with the attack on Wharfies by Australia's biggest stevedoring company, DP World. But first, some union news. In South Australian news, after four years of negotiations and five votes on a new collective agreement, the CFMEU has signed an agreement with US-based tissue and personal care giant Kimberly Clark. Kimberly Clark had attempted to drastically weaken terms and conditions under the threat of closing the Millicent Tissue Mill in South Australia. The plant employs 400 people and produces Kleenex and other well-known brands. The Millicent Mill is the major employer in the town with as many as 3,000 jobs depending on the plant. CFMEU members voted to accept a new offer from the company that includes a wage increase of 4.5% plus an $1,000 cash payment. The company also committed to maintain staff on some equipment lines until 2021 and to agree training priorities for new career paths jointly with the union. However, the threat of plant closure remains. Alex Miller, CFMEU Pulp and Paper Workers District Secretary and Chair of the Industry All Pulp and Paper Sector in Asia-Pacific, said, Our members at Millicent have shown that by standing united, workers can win out against these attacks and threats by corporations. Ben Wilson for the Penn Electronic Newsletter reports that Melbourne nurse Madeleine Masterton is taking Centrelink to court over a false robo-debt claim of around $4,000. This groundbreaking case will be conducted by Victoria Legal Aid. The outcome may have a direct effect on the thousands of Australians who have been targeted with similar debts. Australian Council of Social Services ACOS CEO Cassandra Goldie applauded the legal action, saying, We have repeatedly warned the government that robo-debt is grossly unfair and contrary to basic legal principles, especially the use of automated averaging to calculate debts and the reversal of onus of proof which is leading to inaccurate assessments of what people may or may not owe and of people being pursued for debts they do not owe. It is disappointing that it is being left to an individual and her lawyers to litigate in the courts to stop this injustice. 
Robo-debt is among a long list of policies from the federal government that degrade and harass people living with disability, caring for children, studying or searching for paid work, she said. Instead of making life harder for people with damaging policies like robo-debt, the cashless debit card and Parents Next, a good government would increase the grossly inadequate New Start and youth allowance payments to ensure our society safety net does not trap people in poverty, Ms Goldie said. The release of Hakim al-Arabi on February the 12th, after spending more than 70 days in detention in a Thai jail, came as a great relief to his family and supporters. Hakim, a former State team soccer player in his home country, Bahrain, stood up for human rights and was thus granted permanent residency in Australian refugee status. He and his wife travelled to Thailand for their honeymoon after he checked with the Australian Federal Police if it was safe for him to travel there. Hakim al-Arabi's release came after members of the Australian and international soccer fraternity, the public and the union movement in Australia applied pressure and held rallies in support of Hakim. In Senate hearings into the matter, Australian Federal Police Chief gave evidence that information that Hakim had refugee status in Australia came a day late to the relevant agency before the AFP handed on to the Thai authorities the Interpol red notice for Hakim's deportation back to Bahrain to face politically motivated charges. Online independent news and analysts website, The Conversation, now has its first enterprise bargaining agreement. The agreement was forged after MEAA, the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance membership, rose swiftly to more than 90% of the workforce, giving workers a strong, unified bargaining position. Key union wins include time off in lieu, accruing at double time, a 2% annual pay increase, transparent base rates and pay scales one week study leave a year and paternal leave extended to six weeks. You're listening to Stick Together, workers' stories and union news. Now that the news cycle has moved on from the outstandingly bad performance of banks uncovered by the recent Banking Royal Commission a commission that the federal LNP government were pulled kicking and screaming to have, we thought it was a good idea to look at what is at stake when banks have a toxic culture for workers and the community. We spoke to Julia Angresano, National Secretary of the Financial Sector Union, FSU, for an analysis. It'd be really simple to say that the union is disappointed in the commission and the final report. That would be oversimplistic because both the interim report and then the final report, which was released um, most recently, it contains some well-researched, some sophisticated and some compelling analysis of what the problems in the system are. And the commission, we saw it play out in each of the rounds 
um, in a very dramatic way in some instances around um, poor pay structure, poor culture, um, and really what we saw was that there was this focus on short-term profits and how that led to bad customer outcomes. Well, all of those issues have been consistent with the union's experience of what's been, um, what, what kind of change the sector needed. And for us, the, the union that represents workers across the finance sector, we've been campaigning for changes to pay models and reforming culture for, for many, many years. We say that the report falls dismally short on the recommendations themselves. So of the 76 recommendations in the report, some of them, um, like those that deal with mortgage brokerage or rural banking or insurance products, They've got some immediate substance and we can see how that will lead to change. But very few of the recommendations deal with the core issues such as governance of financial institutions or the REM structures within those institutions. And I think that those recommendations have largely been left to the regulator or to the banks to do better. And there's been no real changes of substance to the legal obligations placed on the banks. They like to say, oh, it's all terribly complex. It's all terribly complex and therefore nothing can be done. But you point out that the executives of the banks are overpaid and uh, that uh, it leaves the pay structures for the middle range employees in a uh, terrible position. Yes, and I'm going to unpack that if it's okay. Yeah, um, but we'd like you to. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to spend a bit of time on, re- on remuneration because it's such an important part of um, the issues at play here. What Commissioner Hain repeatedly identified was that the system of pay was a key driver for how people operate. And over the last two decades, there's been this focus within the sector on transferring workers' pay from models where they receive a salary um, for the work that they perform to one which was awarded by reference to ultimately their contribution to profit. So that meant frontline workers in particular needed to sell more things, needed to refer more people to other parts of the bank. And for, for our members, this also involved, at a more fundamental level, the use of targets, unfair targets often, and performance management processes to ensure that workers sold, as I said, enough things or they would refer sufficient people and they would have enough different prescribed conversations because that's what their employer was driving. We say that these were the management practices that led to outcomes that you would expect. If you pay someone by reference to how many things they will sell, well, of course they're going to focus on selling. If you tell somebody their job's on the line because they haven't sold enough um, mortgages this week, of course they're going to push that particular product um, often on a customer who has walked into the branch or has phoned the contact centre, not related to a mortgage, but that's what, that, that's what, that's what the, the requirement was. The flavour of the month. That was the flavour of the month, and we had, um, they had often in branches sales campaigns where everybody was focused on selling a particular product, um, or you'd get to the end of the week and the branch manager would say, we haven't got enough of this on the books, um, we have to be able to meet our revenue target when it comes to home loans. So that's what we're going to be pushing. So and it's like the, the new, uh, new used car salesperson version of banking. Yeah, and often our members felt like that or like they were working in fast food, like, do you want fries with that? And there was <laughs> this kind of focus and the culture of exploiting every customer opportunity for that sale, um, that sale opportunity because there was more that was required or there was a particular focus that the bank was driving. And I think despite the Commission doing a really good job at identifying that the way in which we paid people and we incentivised people and the role of conflicted pay models being a central problem, 
there are only two recommendations in the report that deal with it, and they deal with it in a thoroughly inadequate manner. And the first recommendation is that the banks, with no formal obligation, they implement um, the Cedric Review. And the Cedric Review recommended reductions, but not the elimination of variable pay. It was a review that had been commissioned by the banks, for the banks, by the Australian Bankers Association. Mm, It was limited to only frontline staff of retail banks. And all the banks have already committed to implementing um, the Sedgwick review. So it was really interesting that Commissioner Hayne would say, well, you've already committed to doing something which we have all identified as not being able to address the issues of conflicted and variable pay models, but just continue doing that. And the second recommendation that the Commissioner makes is that banks should conduct their own reviews on an annual basis, um, and that's to make sure that their pay um, models promote not only what they want staff to do, but also how they want staff to do it. And again, I think given how aggressively banks have wanted staff to sell products in the past, that recommendation doesn't go anywhere near far enough, and it doesn't give us the hope that that's going to bring about real change. So I've just outlined there the changes to the bottom level of, like, frontline level staff. And essentially that's kind of your, your teller and your seller and then, and then the branch manager. It's just those three levels that the Cedric Review picks up on. More significantly, there's a bunch of issues, a bunch of recommendations that deal with um, executive remuneration structures, some recommendations for, for, for pay for financial planners and for mortgage brokers, but there's no recommendation that deals with middle management, back office management, um, compliance staff, staff of insurance companies, or any other participant in the sector. That is indeed the vast majority of employees that we're talking about. And we've been saying for a really long time that middle management is the key here. Executive management have a big role to play. But if we don't change middle managers, and we often call them the permafrost, they are the ones that drive poor culture because their own targets and their own pay structure is is reliant on the lower level staff achieving the outcomes. And that group is not subject to any recommendation at all. It's extraordinary that one of the takeouts from the Royal Commission's recommendations is to the extent that he that Commissioner Hayne now expects APRA and ASIC to do the heavy lifting of fixing the sector, when in circumstances before him, through the Royal Commission, um, the evidence was that APRA and, and ASIC had failed, that they were too cosy, that they had been captured, um, that they weren't doing the prosecutions because they were trying to find out whether or not the banks were interested in, well, not interested, but are other banks okay with this particular press release before we put it out? Um, so it's really unclear to us as to why he now has such confidence that ASIC and APRA will change their tune. Um, but nonetheless, that, that's where we are today. So I think there's certainly a role for the union to have with engagement with the regulators so that the regulators can continue to see and hear directly from frontline staff and workers across the sector about the fact that you know, particular pay models um, aren't changing at the pace that they, they need to change if we're going to restore trust and confidence with the community. My lip curls when they talk about, you know, uh, the public have lost trust. But in actual fact, uh, people require a competent and trustworthy system. They're part of the engine of capitalism, mm. effectively, aren't they? They are, and we, we've identified through the Royal Commission that are an important step in rebuilding trust and confidence with the community um, because we know that's important, um, obviously, for the interaction that customers have with their banks. But as you say, um, we need our banks to be strong and viable. Um, they're an important part of the economy. And what we've said there is that workers within the sector themselves 
want to be part of the solution here. And professionalising the industry is a really critical way um, of improving the sector. And one of the things that we're saying here is that employees in the finance sector, they want to have careers, they want to have development opportunities, um, and they want to be able to do that within the capacity to make good ethical decisions, often where their employer would encourage them otherwise. And the Commissioner considered um, and heard lots of international experience, particularly in places like the UK following the GFC, that have shown that when you actually put a focus on professionalisation, it can be an important key strategy in improving bank culture and behaviour. Um, and so the recommendations um, around professionalisation for financial planners that we saw the Commissioner said in order for financial planners to be trusted again, um, they need to have professionalisation and a minimum standard of education, a minimum ongoing com um, um, professional development is what is required for financial planners. And we say that's a welcomed recommendation in the report, but perhaps it shouldn't just um, it shouldn't stop at financial planners. It should be extended so that that type of regulation um, or, or professionalisation, I should say, extends to all other parts of the sector, um, all specialists, so that you can be confident that when I sit down um, and get a home loan, that my lender also has the adequate uh, requirements, education, um, and I'm confident that what they um, provide to me in terms of the service or product is actually the right product that I need, not one because it's you know, being pushed because of a, a campaign or certainly not one that's been pushed because of a, a self-interest in terms of the way in which they're paid. So I think professionalisation is also a really important part of this debate in terms of what, what kind of reform we need in the sector. Well, uh, you do say that uh, there's no focus in this report on criminal liability for senior executives who willfully breached obligations. We don't expect to see any of them go to prison. Is that right? Yeah, everybody I think was expecting Commissioner Hayne to actually name some individuals as a result of the case studies. And again, what he's done is he's referred them, those cases back to um, the regulator for them to have a closer look at whether or not any of them should be referred to um, the Department of Public Prosecutions. I think again, I mean, just on that point more broadly, that goes to, to the role of, of governance, doesn't it? And, and, and there was a lot of um, talk through the Royal Commission in terms of governance structures across the sector um, and, and where executives failed, um, whether they weren't asking the right questions or they weren't getting the right level of information and they weren't probing. We saw time and time again, especially in the superannuation round, where um, boards and trustees failed to meet their obligations back to, um, back to either their shareholders or indeed their, their members if it was in, a, in the context of a super fund. Um, and I think what we're saying is that we see the need for better governance structures across the sector. And that better governance starts with better engagement with the trade unions, with community, and that is really central to reforming the sector. Um, I think without those types of changes, then we're going to see boards um, really focus on compliance because there will be a, a heightened level of compliance, certainly now with the regulator stepping it up and, and, and being required to do more. Um, and that's important. But I think there's other voices that can really shape and, and direct and have board members think about the way in which the, the broader community views them and the types of things that they should be doing at a governance level. You're listening to Stick Together, the only national program covering workers' stories and union news. Down on the wharfs, DP World, the largest stevedoring company in Australia, is refusing to negotiate with workers, demanding they sign on the dotted line or lose their income protection insurance. 
The workers voted to take protected strike action. We talked to Warren Smith, Assistant National Secretary of the Maritime Union of Australia, about what's going on. It does go to show you the the basic nature of corporate thuggery um, to basically stand over their workforce with a threat that impacts workers' families and their health and well-being at the end of the day. So we've got a company who's prepared to use the health of workers and the well-being of their workforce as leverage to achieve a an enterprise agreement outcome. And in doing so, it actually costs them more money to get rid of our income protection. So this is a complete despicable act. And the entire membership across DP World, 1,800 Wharfies, are ropeable and are prepared to fight and stand up and do what they need to do to bring some justice back into this workplace. So we're talking about container terminals in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and Fremantle. That's right. There's four terminals across the country, all totally united, that we are not going to let DP World get away with what we believe is just a corporate thuggery and severe attacks on the workforce. And they need to be condemned for it. And um, we're going to use every bit of bargaining power and leverage and industrial action we have to to right these wrongs. Your members, before you could do protected action, the uh, Fair Work Commission said you had to give five days, which is twice as long uh, notice before you actually put on work bans. Yep. It's part of the, the whole nature of the completely unacceptable anti-worker, um, anti-trade union laws in this country um, and the application of them through the Commission, which is totally and firmly on the employer's side. Now, giving, making us give five days notice, all that means is that the Commission is handed to the employer the right to move the ship and subcontract it so they've got time to subcontract vessels to avert industrial action of workers. So not only are your rights to take action severely curtailed, but you have a collaborative process between the Commission and employers to effectively negate the effectiveness of industrial action and strike action. It's a disgraceful decision. but you know, And we have to assess different ways and different tactics to deal with this further erosion of workers' rights. And the only thing that I can see is that their bastardry in forcing us to give five days' notice means that we're going to have to take longer periods of industrial action, and that's because the Fair Work Commission and the employers have forced us into that position. Yeah, well, it's interesting tactics that they're uh, enforcing just before the federal election, I presume. Yeah, well, that's an interesting... um, part of this and you know change the rules is obviously quite critical for working people during the election it's a great example of the complete lack of rights um maybe the the employers want to whip up some industrial unrest and try and point that out um as a a factor why they you know the population should flow into a voting liberal which is just like counterintuitive and self-harm um but you know that's maybe the way they're doing it but we're not going to resolve for employers attacking the health and well-being of their workforce, uh, we're going to fight. And election or not, we're going to fight. And I suppose that those, you know, lined up during the electoral process, we'll have to make a judgment as to whether or not what we're doing is uh, a legitimate thing, uh, inconsistent with the whole Change the Rules campaign in defending the rights of workers against the greed of massive corporate power.
Now, DP World, they reckon 2.6% pay rise should be enough. It's all about money. Can you tell us a little bit about their ingenuousness in offering that? Well, 2.6% was an outcome that was achieved last time after a significant amount of struggle. Um, But also, the agreement wasn't about money last time. It was about conditions of work, and there were some significant conditions of work um, gained, and income protection was one of them um, that they've now taken away from us. Um, But during that time, that 2.6% that was rolled out was on the basis of the necessity um, for the company to have a lesser outcome because the uh, you know, in their view, the economy wasn't going as well as it should be. The company wasn't in as good a position. They held on right to their the death, and that's what they got. Now, we accepted the agreement um, because it was had some very good conditions in it. And quite frankly, we um, think the conditions are more important than the money. Um, but this time around, 2.6% with no conditions, and in fact, stripping the conditions that were the basis of acceptance of the 2.6%, um, and notwithstanding that, to cop a, a reduced wage outcome from what people, what workers were trying to achieve, um, seen the company have record profits. So, you know, all of this stuff about, oh, we're doing it tough, is a myth. It's always a myth. And bosses just say this stuff to put themselves in the most profitable position. We're just not prepared to roll an agreement over that means you're going to continue to have in disputes in an ongoing fashion, um, the rolling along, and at the same time, when you roll it over, we've removed our capacity to fix the disputes because we've got no ability to take any protected action. And for four years, they haven't been willing to fix the problems in the workplace, um, a whole host of things around training and leave accruals, and it's just a heap of blues. Um, and we're not going to lock in to another agreement that's in dispute, that's not 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 what the workers want. What they're saying is, by doing what they're doing, that issue really is, they're saying is, we're no, no longer prepared to negotiate with workers. We're the boss, just do what we're told. you're told. Yeah, that's right. And it also comes on the back of some company changes. Some of those institutional investors got out of DP World and now they're 60% owned by the global stevedoring giant, the global network terminal operator out of Dubai. So we've returned ownership and at the same time, that particular ownership of the company have installed what seems to be a manager who's or a CEO who's adopted a fairly provocative approach, has made no contact with the union, has just ignored us and basically has written to the workforce on two occasions with a message that you're getting nothing and that the only thing that's going to happen in this workplace is improvements for the customers and cost-cutting. Well, we've got news for the CEO that's not a position that we're prepared to embrace. Um, and we believe that it's the workforce that have been the generator solely of the profits of DP World. And they deserve a fair share of those profits. And we're going to be fighting to get that. That's it for Stick Together today. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and we broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and on iTunes. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. My name's Annie McLaughlin. Until next time, stick together.